Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. The concurrent global crises of pandemic disease, economic contraction, systemic inequality, and environmental degradation are evolving amid a rebirth of nationalism, rapid technological change, and breakdowns in international cooperation. Against this backdrop, the work of nations to chart a new course under the Sustainable Development Goals toward economic, social, and environmental progress by 2030 continues. On today's episode, I speak with Senior Fellow John MacArthur, Director of the new Center for Sustainable Development at Brookings, whose mission is to pursue research and insights to advance global sustainable development and to implement the Sustainable Development Goals across all countries. MacArthur talks about the goals of the new center, why sustainable development remains so critical in these times, and why he's passionate about the work. Also on today's show, Senior Fellow Molly Reynolds with another edition of What's Happening in Congress. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. First up, What's Happening in Congress with Molly Reynolds. I'm Molly Reynolds, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. President Trump's potentially destabilizing claims notwithstanding, the presidential election has been decided in favor of President-elect Joe Biden. The final landscape of the Congress he will work with come January, however, remains less clear. As of now, eight House races remain uncalled, and partisan control of the Senate won't be determined until January 5th, when two runoff elections in Georgia will be decided. Even with a handful of results outstanding, Democrats have won enough seats to maintain their House majority, but it will be smaller than their current one. Indeed, it stands to be their smallest House majority in the post-war period. Not only will the majority be narrow, moreover, expectations going into the election were that the party would expand its ranks rather than lose seats. Conventional wisdom suggested that a bad night for Democrats would have involved gaining only five seats, but at present, they have lost five on net. What happened? We still need more data, especially about how the presidential race shook out at the congressional district level to provide clear answers. But we do know that most losses were in districts where Democrats had picked up seats in 2018. Only one of the eight who lost, Colin Peterson of Minnesota, is not a current freshman. House Democrats had hoped to win more of the kinds of suburban seats that they won in 2018. Indeed, the only seat House Democrats have picked up so far that was not the result of new congressional district lines is in suburban Atlanta. But generally, rather than making additional gains in these sorts of districts, Democrats lost ground. In the Senate, meanwhile, Democrats picked up just one seat on net, with wins over incumbent Republicans in Arizona and Colorado, and the loss of an incumbent Democrat in Alabama. In addition to Georgia, Democrats had focused their hopes on four other Republican-held seats in Iowa, North Carolina, Maine, and Montana. Of these states, all but Maine gave their presidential votes to President Trump, suggesting that a strong historical trend towards low levels of ticket splitting, at least in Senate races, may have continued. Indeed, in 2016 and 2020, exactly one senator was elected when his or her state voted for a presidential candidate of the other party, Susan Collins of Maine, who beat expectations to get reelected last week. What does this all mean for legislating in the 117th Congress? If Republicans win one or both runoff races in Georgia in January, we'll find ourselves with the presidency and the House controlled by one party and the Senate controlled by the other, which is an unusual division of power in Washington. It's only happened once since World War II, 
In addition, the president's party, thanks in part to coattail dynamics, has historically had control of both chambers of Congress during the first two years of his first term. This kind of divided party control certainly makes congressional action more difficult, but it also can obscure someone who's to blame for gridlock. When a single party controls the House, the Senate, and the presidency, it is easier for the other party to criticize them for not getting things done. When the two parties share power, even the most basic responsibilities of government require cooperation across the aisle, making it more difficult to assign blame to just the party holding congressional majorities in the White House. Given that the chamber that might be controlled by the opposite party is the Senate, a key first test of what the dynamics between the parties will look like if Republicans do maintain control of it will be nominations to executive branch positions. Ending debate on these nominations only requires a simple majority in the Senate, meaning President Biden would have to select appointees that could garner the support of only a few Republicans for approval. Getting those votes, however, is not likely to be the biggest challenge. Choosing nominees who Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is willing to bring to the floor is. While confirming nominees would be easier if Democrats do win both Senate runoffs in Georgia and find themselves with an evenly split Senate and a tie-breaking vote from Vice President Kamala Harris, that would not resolve all of the party's legislative challenges. The filibuster would likely stymie many legislative priorities, and some Democratic senators, notably Joe Manchin of West Virginia, have indicated that they are unwilling to eliminate the 60-vote requirement to end debate on most legislation. While senators' positions could change depending on the actual piece of legislation at hand when a debate over eliminating the filibuster comes to a head, it is far from clear that Democrats could eliminate the filibuster even if they win both Senate seats in Georgia. Add in the narrow majority in the House and a Republican House minority well-positioned to make additional gains in the House in the midterms, and it suggests that an uphill battle for Democrats is much of what will be happening in Congress. And now, here's John MacArthur, director of the New Center for Sustainable Development at Brookings. John, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks for having me, Fred. Happy to be here. I was reflecting on the history here, and I last interviewed you on the podcast with Homie Karras in October 2015, so five years ago. Oh, my gosh. So the world has changed a lot. And so we might touch on that a bit as we talk about this topic, which is the fact that you are the inaugural director of the new Center for Sustainable Development at Brookings. So congratulations on that. Thank and standing you. up the new center and to all your colleagues there. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the new center's mission and goals? Of course. Thank you. And it's definitely a team effort. So a lot of people have brought us to this day uh, in the team at the center and also all around Brookings and around the world because the center aims to really generate research and insights to advance what we call global sustainable development and the sustainable development goals. So we can get into all of what that means, but their global sustainable development really references the universal challenge of tackling the interwoven economic, social, and environmental problems that all societies are confronting in some form, including the United States domestically, but also in its own form, many of the poorest countries of the world are confronting in different ways too. And so we're trying to take this on as an analytical agenda. But also there's a bunch of policy goals and these sustainable development goals are 17 goals that were set by all countries back in September 2015. 
to a 2030 time horizon. And we want to help those get achieved too across those economic, social, and environmental domains. And this isn't a new area of research for Brookings. I mean, this has been going on for many years, for decades even. So why a center? What does it mean that this research is now under the umbrella of what we call at Brookings a center? Well, it's a great question. I'll give you my best answer. I don't know if I can give a complete one, but uh, at Brookings does a couple things. One is it pulls together many important things that scholars are already doing. So we have an amazing starting roster. We have Homi Karas, who helped to write what many people consider the first draft of the Sustainable Development Goals for the World. We have Marcelo Escobari, who is pioneering new ways of thinking about mobility and job mobility for low-income workers in the U.S. and used to run Latin America for USAID. We have people like Tony Pippa, who helped to negotiate the goals for the United States and is really active in thinking about how to connect local leadership for the goals across the U.S. and even in the rural parts of America with local leaders in other parts of the world because it's got to be pushed down to where people live in order to really resonate. We have Amar Bhattacharya, who's a longstanding leader in sustainable infrastructure, climate change, worked for decades with developing country finance ministers, and he's really helping to mobilize what we call the biggest picture of global issues on climate. And then George Ingram, who is, in my view, a godfather of bipartisan U.S. cooperation for global development, foreign aid, foreign assistance. And so each of these people, there are six of us, I work on a lot of the sustainable development issues. I work a lot in the multilateral system, extreme poverty, and also my home country of Canada. And each of us are working on our core pieces. And we thought it was important to try to pull it together so that the whole could be more than the sum of its parts. What we then do, hopefully, is consolidate our ability to do more and to contribute more, to galvanize more partnerships. We really want to focus on being a node in a global network of policy leadership for this, because there's so many people from business, from government, from civil society, from academia, who are working on different pieces of the puzzle. We want to help to be not just a problem solver in our own right, through our research and convening, but also a connector for others. And I think this center and having, I have to say, extraordinary support from John Allen as the president of Brookings, and of course, Brahima Koulibaly and Global We have a tremendous ability to send a signal to the world as Brookings that these issues matter, they're front and center, they're not going away. And I think it does matter that this isn't seen as what a friend of mine calls folk fest. This is seen as center stage. And so that's really how we're thinking about this is how to define and articulate that center stage-ness of the issues then also how to advance the problem solving, the policy efforts, the partnership efforts, the network leadership efforts, so that the problems actually do get solved. Right. I'm going to go into what some of those specific problems are in a moment. I do want to tell listeners that they can hear interviews that I've done, not only with you, but with people like Homi and Amar and George, but I haven't done interviews with some of your other new collaborators, uh, Tony and uh, Marcel. And I look forward to interviewing them on the program in the coming months in the year or so. Again, thanks for that. It's very exciting. You mentioned that you're from Canada, John. You also mentioned a few minutes ago that these kinds of questions of sustainable development also pertain to the United States. When people think about sustainable development, I do want to ask you to define what that means, but we think about the developing world, other places around the world. 
we don't think about countries like the United States and we don't think about Canada or Britain. Can you talk about maybe why we should be thinking about this country, Canada, other quote developed countries in the context of the sustainable development program? It's a great question. I would say up front, I've gone through my own journey on this uh, over the past several years. And I remember the first time someone told me in 2012, there was an intergovernmental agreement to set these things called the Sustainable Development Goals. And I remember in a very cheeky way, I was talking to a senior official at the time, and I said, I love sustainable development. I just don't know what it means. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking through what it means and the international policy debates have really come a long ways to define what it means. Let me give you what's like the big picture conceptual answer, and then a little more of what would be the jargon, and then third, how I would boil it down. So the big picture conceptual answer, it actually goes back to someone named Girl Harlan Brundtland, who led something called the Brundtland Commission back in the 80s. She was a Norwegian prime minister, very famous world leader, head of WHO, and going into the first Earth Summit, really, a long, long time ago, they came up with this definition of advancing the current generation's well-being without sacrificing any of the future generation's well-being. That's kind of the essence of it. So we do well, but we don't inhibit our future generation's ability to do well and to support the planet. Over time, it's been refined, especially as this notion of goals came to be. What does this really mean? And there are three pillars to it. It's the economic, the prosperity, the social, the people, and the environmental, the planet. So it really comes down to people, prosperity, and planet, and they need to work together. Now, in jargon, it's things like combating inequality within and between countries, preserving the planet, creating inclusive and sustainable economic growth, fostering social inclusion, all these things that are I would say, in a certain sense, buzzwords, but also kind of core concepts. But the key thing is, no country has yet solved all of them together. So even the United States or Canada, very wealthy countries on average, have a lot of people getting left behind. And when these goals were set in 2015, after a few years of the world's most inclusive negotiations or public input that the world's ever seen, the one sentence that all the negotiators from 193 countries kept coming back to saying over and over again was, we will leave no one behind. And if anything, we will support the furthest behind first. And so this notion of people getting left behind has been central to this. and. In the global sense, the first among equals of the challenges of sustainable development is eradicating extreme poverty, because those are the people who have been most left behind, most excluded from life opportunity in the most basic sense. But it also goes to these questions of relative poverty within countries and within communities, and who's getting left behind. And then it gets into deeper questions of, well, great if you have high average incomes. What if your carbon emissions are going up? Or great if you have high average incomes, but it's only the top 1% that's getting the gains. And then if we look at countries like the U.S., we see, well, gosh, average life expectancy has been coming down in several of the past, most recent years. On average for the country, even while income's been going up, that can't be right. And so I boil it down in the simplest sense that every country in the world is trying to solve three basic problems. 
and I call it recoupling, decoupling, and recoupling. And what do I mean by that? Recoupling is we need to recouple economic progress with average well-being of families. So when I was going to graduate school, more years ago than I care to count, it was kind of an article of faith. If the economy was doing better, people are doing better. People don't really believe that so much anymore. So GDP is going up. Great. What does that mean for my family? And this is where we do see this challenge of many parts of the world with things like the opioid epidemic, mental health crises, others, even before COVID, life expectancy started to go down. My home province of British Columbia in Canada has seen life expectancy drop in recent years. This is a huge issue. But then also we see so much of the gain being taken in society's economic growth by the top segments of society. So it's kind of who's running away with the farm is kind of a debate that many places are having. But we need to see people doing well on average and that their lives are getting better, not just their incomes are getting better. The second big challenge is the decoupling, and that's to decouple the economic progress we need to see. And it's all those hundreds of millions of people in extreme poverty and billions of people still in general poverty, they need to get out of poverty. But we're still facing this problem that every new unit of economic progress is still cranking out a corresponding unit of environmental problem. And we need to break that link. And climate change is the most profoundly obvious that greenhouse gas emissions are now at their highest sustained level in the carbon atmospheric concentration of probably several million years. And that's because we've got this great economic success of billions of people getting lifted out of poverty globally, but we have to decarbonize every unit of progress. And that's why this notion of eliminating carbon emissions by 2050 becomes so important, for example, because we got to at least reduce it by 90% per unit of GDP. But it's other things that come up too, oceans, food systems, plastics. We've got so many environmental problems, but the biggest issue is to decouple. And then this third is the recoupling. And by that, I mean, we're all in it together. And it used to be, I would argue, that economies were tested by whether they worked on average. And now I think they're tested by whether they work for everyone. And in every country in the world, in every society in the world, especially in North America, we see it as much as anywhere else, people are tired of being left behind based on their race, their gender, their ethnicity, their geography, their sexual orientation, their indigenous status, any number of issues. And so this notion of no one left behind or leave no one behind, I think has a very profound resonance or religious orientation in some countries, of course. And we need to see equal access to opportunity for all. And so those three issues, the recoupling, the decoupling, the recoupling, to me, that's what this sustainable development agenda is all about. And every society is confronting some version of those three things. Recoupling, decoupling, and recoupling. Okay, I'm going to put that phrase in the show notes so people can lock it in their minds. Well, John, so you've mentioned a couple of the goals. And again, there are 17 sustainable development goals. And eradicating global poverty is one of them. Combating climate change is one of them. And from my perspective as a layperson, not a practitioner of work in international organizations and sustainable development, these seem to be really high up on the list. And maybe a couple of more. I know zero hunger and high quality education. I talk with our colleagues in the Center for Universal Education a lot about education issues. 
But what are some of the goals that you think deserve more attention? Not that they're any more or less important, because I don't think there's any hierarchy in the 17 sustainable development goals. What are some of the other issues that you think don't get as much attention? All of them should. But what are some of the other ones that you would want to just chat about right now? I would make two points on this, Fred. The first is for each of these goals, whether it's uh, poverty or hunger or healthcare or gender equality or education or jobs or cities or the environment or water, you know, da 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 da. There is someone who is absolutely convinced that that issue is the most important issue. And there are tens of millions of people who hold firm that their issue is the most important issue because that's the one they see they might be confronting and dealing with in their own life every day, whether it's the job or the gender discrimination they're facing or the uh, institutions that are breaking down into conflict or, you know, the schools that are closed or if they're open uh, not getting fixed quickly enough. And each of these issues has a major constituency And the big point is each of them is right. And that's the point of these goals. I did the math once early on where I started canvassing people. I go into different rooms and I ask, what's the single most important issue the world needs to solve? I still ask this question pretty much everywhere I go. And it doesn't take a very big room to get all 17 issues out on the table that someone thinks that's the most important thing. And that's the point of these goals is that they're a way to get everyone on the same page, literally and figuratively whatever side of the proverbial elephant they're seeing in their day-to-day. Now, that said, when I do ask that question, second point is, some things often don't come up. The one that I would argue comes up least often is oceans. I make a joke of it often, well, oceans, I guess that doesn't matter. It's only 70% of the planet. Guess we don't need to deal with that over the coming generation. And people laugh, ha-ha. And then I make the point, that that's an intentionally obnoxious comment I'm making (laughs) because the world has to understand these goals properly. These goals aren't what the UN told the world to care about. They're what the world told the UN not to forget about. And so I think of goal 14 for oceans is really important because people often forget about it, especially if they don't see the oceans all the time. But it's 70% of the planet, and it kind of matters for all of us, even if we might not interface with it or see it every day. If I go to a school of public health, they're going to focus more on the health issues, maybe naturally. If I go to a political science department, they focus more on the public institution issues and inequality issues. So everyone sees a different piece of the puzzle, and everyone's got their natural blind spots. So I think of these goals as almost a checklist of what are all the things everyone's worrying about? And it's not a complete checklist for the world, but it's a pretty good one. And it's definitely a strong starting point to make sure we're all thinking about all the things that everyone is already worrying about. And that then lets us think about, okay, what do we do about it? Well, speaking of then, when you're doing the collaborative work, John, on these issues, talking to all different kinds of people who are all seeing a different part of the elephant, how do you collaboratively maybe in the same space, not same space anymore, but via Zoom, how do you get a large group of people who care about these issues to collaboratively consider all 17 of them holistically? I mean, is there a formula for that? Oh my gosh, now you're going to get me excited. (laughs) This is exactly one of the problems we're working on. And we have this whole 17 rooms initiative 
that we've been doing over the past couple of years with Rockefeller Foundation to say, how do we convene people around each of these different problem areas, each of which is really its own constituency? And often it goes back to the departments that people went to school in. Did they go to school in like the oceanography department or did they go to school in the economics department or did they go to school in the public health department? Like all these things, they last for decades of people's lives in terms of what they see and what they care about. So we said, well, actually, why don't we honor that instead of criticize it? And why don't we get people together, ultimately not thinking about the abstract, far-off goals that might feel too big or be too hairy for people to get their head around, and instead think about getting people together in rooms, which is where people meet, or actually this year we called it 17 Zooms, where people meet virtually. And we said, why don't you actually get them together to think about if they were to cooperate, each within their own room, what could they do next? as a next step that might bend a curve towards success. And then why don't we have them report out on what they each see and then see what bubbles up on where they could cooperate. So we've actually been trying to codify this as a methodology. And we were even working with some universities and hopefully some communities soon to say how this could be what we call 17 Rooms X or 17 Rooms U, that local communities can start to say, here's a way to get all of the different constituencies to care about all their different things, to agree on things that they think could be done next, but also then to learn from what each other constituency sees could be done next, and then to think through what can bubble up to cooperate. And so we're going to put out a report in a couple of weeks on some of the big themes that we're seeing on how people are talking about transitions coming out of this crisis and where there's real ripe areas to cooperate. Well, I want to talk about the crisis now and think about it as a dividing line before and now and moving ahead to ask you about how do you discuss, how do you talk about whatever progress the nations of the world were making on the sustainable development goals, let's say through 2019 before the coronavirus really hit? And then what impact is the coronavirus having and will it have on continuing attention to and progress toward meeting the goals? So how's the world doing compared to pre-COVID on the SDGs? This is a really hard question to answer in many ways because the data suck, you know, in a technical term. There are some things that we know a lot about. We know a lot about how many people are unemployed in the U.S. every month or getting a job, making jobless claims or asking for income support in a lot of the advanced economies. I would argue that's a major part of the SDGs in terms of how advanced economies are doing in terms of ensuring livelihoods and successful livelihoods. But we don't yet know how the household level offshoots are taking shape within all the people who have been laid off or maybe working from home or maybe have some job insecurity in a new way. So that stuff is more evident in the front line, less evident in the back line. We have some issues like extreme poverty, just to go back to that one, where our colleague Homer Cross, with some of his peers, recently put out an assessment. The world was doing, in historical terms, pretty well in addressing extreme poverty over the past generation. And in 2015, best estimates are we were down to around 700 million people living on $1.90 a day or less. 
And this was getting down to around 620 million, so about a drop of 80 million people in just five years. And by Homie's best estimate, that number this year has jumped up about 140 million. So that's a big jump and probably the first time in well over 20 years, if not many more, that we've seen an increase in the number of people living in extreme poverty. And we've probably reversed quite a few years' gains, at least in the short, short term. Now, there's news today that there might be a vaccine coming out. We're all going to see what might be really sticky in terms of solutions and how soon that all happens. So we don't know if that's going to be a blip of reversal and then go back to a downward trajectory. But I think the odds are it's certainly slowed down a lot. And this year is going to be tumultuous and traumatic for many, many people around the world. And that itself might be sticky. So we have maybe 130 million people extra that are pushed into pretty severe hunger. By some estimates, more than a million extra children will die this year before their fifth birthday because of gaps of access to health care. And then we have really long-term questions like, we have more than a billion kids out of school at one point. Within a matter of weeks, it was close to a billion and a half out of school. As of September, it was still around 800 million out of school. This won't just matter in the short term. This could matter in lots of long-term ways. Some of them will go back to school and have big learning gaps that might persist for a lifetime. Some of them might not go back to school at all, especially girls in a lot of places, and then will have dropout effects for a lifetime. And there are these big, big so-called cohort questions of if you were a kid of age X when the crisis came and you spent a year or two out of school in 2020 and 2021, we might be watching those costs in 2050, 2060 in terms of how those kids' lives are affected. So these are some of the bigger uncertainties that we all need to track. And I would say on the environmental side, I would have three big buckets always, you know, some things were getting better and then had a big blip. Some things were kind of steady state and then have had a big question mark of uncertainty of how bad is it going to be. And then some things were going in the wrong direction, especially the environmental issues like climate, oceans protection, biodiversity, and the crisis hasn't turned it around. The one bright light I will put in this maybe category of the environment is there is meant to be a climate summit and a biodiversity summit and actually an anti-desertification summit all in 2020. These are like the major summits that no one's heard about. Maybe some people have heard about the climate summit, but these other ones was really to chart the world's ambitions for the next generation. Each of those got pushed back a year because of COVID. With the what now seems to be change in administration in the U.S., the president-elect Biden talking about rejoining the Paris Agreement right away and also rejoining the World Health Organization right away. We do have a possibility that the year delay and the reinitiation of global cooperation because of it allows a breakthrough to happen on these big summit moments in 2021. So there could be an accident of history that COVID delayed these things long enough for the politics to line up to get a much better breakthrough. Wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I'm sure most people hadn't, but thanks for sharing that because I did want to ask what opportunities and challenges do you see in the field of sustainable development under a Biden presidency in the coming years? And you mentioned rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, rejoining the World Health Organization, being able to participate in these 
postponed summits. What are some other areas that you think the outlook looks perhaps different or brighter for sustainable development? I think there are a couple things that might happen at once. And to start, there's a lot to play out in this transition era. And we see that the politics are messy even this week. So a lot to be figured out. But I think the biggest backdrop point is the crisis, as a colleague of mine said recently, the crisis has brought about a change in thinking about how the world works and how the issues interconnect that the sustainable development goals we're already trying to point out five years ago. So if we think about it, it's a microscopic imbalance between nature and humans in one part of the world that almost immediately upended all of global economy and global society in a matter of weeks. And then all of a sudden we have, in addition to hundreds of million people being turned out of work to more than a billion kids out of school to millions of people extra dying, there couldn't be a starker illustration of how interconnected these issues are. And they need to think very differently about what resilience looks like for humanity. Now, if we take that lens, most of us want to go back to normal. I know my family does. But I don't really want to go back to 2019 as my normal, because one of the things we've learned is that 2019 was not such a hot place in terms of resilience for these issues and preparing ourselves for how they interconnect. And so in that sense, I think when we add to that the issues of racial discord in many parts of the world, systemic racism in the U.S., front and center, as a huge issue that needs to be tackled. When we think about issues of how climate will really be confronted over the long, long term, if you're sitting in the middle of wildfires in any part of the U.S. and you can't go outside for a couple of weeks because the air is unbreathable. If we think about the interconnections of all these issues, we start to think differently about where do we want to invest. I would also say there's a real funniness in our public debates on what dollar values count. So one of the funny things about this speaking as kind of a macro-oriented economist is a gift of everyone talking about trillions of dollars at a time in the immediate response is that it's shown that billions aren't necessarily the big numbers. And we're in a $100 trillion global economy. So we're talking about a trillion dollars for a global investment need. That's 1% of the world economy. That's actually a small number, and you think of the global scale. And so we have to be thinking, I think, quite differently about what kind of investments we need. And if this year we dropped 5% of world GDP, we don't yet know what the final number is going to be, but call it 5%, that's about $5 trillion of lost income around the world. So then the question is, how many billions or trillions would we have invested up front to stop that? To protect those dollars, would we have spent $10 billion? Probably. Would we have spent $100 billion? Probably. Would we have spent $1 trillion? Hopefully. But maybe not. And so I think the crisis and the change of administration, but also the new mindset around the world, has an opportunity to trigger a different way of thinking around what is an upfront investment worth and what does it cost and in that way, when we think about what does it look like to have safe cities, what does it look like to tackle the resilience of our environment, even our ocean front, what does it mean to put up investments in low-carbon energy systems, what does it look like to transition to electric vehicles, 
I hope that we're going to start thinking very differently about risk return, but also return on investment for much bigger investments that are needed to tackle these big issues in the world. Well, John, I wanted to close our conversation by going back to something you said a little bit earlier in the conversation. And this is kind of a personal question for you. Your passion and, of course, expertise on this topic are just evident. I know listeners will hear that right away. But you said earlier, I love sustainable development. And I quoted you, I love sustainable development. John, why do you love sustainable development? I love the notion of societies working for everyone. I love the notion of societies managing nature in a way that allows nature and the societies both to succeed. And I love the notion of solving problems so that we can all move forward together. I think the core of this, amidst all the acronyms and all the jargon, the core of this does come back to really two things, which maybe are important in the moment we're in in history right now. One is the need for cooperation. And if I were to argue one word should be our headline every day right now, it's cooperate, cooperate, cooperate. Because all this stuff needs cooperation. And that's really a basic first principle that I care about a lot. The other one, I think, is respect for difference of perspective. And not a word, but as a concept, because different people see different things as important. And the goals, for me, the sustainable development goals as a tool, they're really just a tool, they're a bunch of words, are a way for me to engage with so many people who see different things than I see. And that's just exciting, actually, because you get to learn a lot and to see the world constantly through new eyes. That's fun. So I think it's this notion of cooperation and respect for difference of viewpoint that to me are like the most personally motivating pieces of all this. And then ultimately that helps solve problems, which is why we all get out of bed every day, hopefully. Uh, Well, John MacArthur, Senior Fellow and Director of the New Center for Sustainable Development at Brookings. Congratulations on the new center and thank you for sharing with us your passion and your expertise today. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for yours every week. Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is possible only with the help of a team of amazing colleagues. My thanks go out to audio engineer Gaston Reberedo and our intern Ryan Jacobs, to Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, to Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration, and finally to Camilo Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, the current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.